This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Go to the NBN line on that page and follow the instructions. That's it. From all of us at the network, thanks for your support. Hey everyone, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Beatrix Hoffman, professor of history at Northern Illinois University, not far from me in Chicago. Her 2012 book, Healthcare for Some, Rights and Rationing in the United States Since 1930, published by Chicago Press, certainly has some geographic resonance with the area. Drawing on a large amount of primary source material 
related to public health in Chicago. However, she expands her scope to broader territory in order to explore the reciprocal roles of rights and rationing in the development of the modern U.S. healthcare system. The very notion of rationing in the context of healthcare is often deployed in today's debates as a rhetorical argument against any kind of centralized system. Pragmatically speaking, all healthcare is rationed, and the means of doing so have shifted with policy, place, and precedent in important ways over time, an argument sustained throughout the book. On the other hand, we see that conceptions of rights are far from the only kind mobilized in debates about access to care. Rights are often superseded by other agendas like military support, efficiency, and even charity, the irony of which will hopefully not be lost on listeners tuned into debates on philanthropy and social justice. Framing her narrative within this dichotomy of rights and rationing allows Hoffman to chart broader trends in the transformation of American healthcare. The result is a book driven by big questions that confound many across different political spectra. My personal favorite is, how does the U.S. spend more per capita on healthcare than any other country while still leaving tens of millions uninsured? Healthcare for Some offers a critical assessment of how the modern U.S. healthcare system came into being, effortlessly splicing together vivid snapshots of local politics and informed takes on national policy debates. That a book this broad and deep in scope is also so compact and accessible is another triumph, and a reason for everyone to get their hands on a copy. Though the book was published in 2012 and written in the heat of debate surrounding the Affordable Care Act, the issues it speaks to are just as important in 2015 as the revised system is being put to the test. I hope you enjoyed listening to my interview with Beatrix as much as I enjoyed conducting it, and I urge you to read and share this book. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Mikey McGovern, and uh, you're listening to New Books in Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Beatrix Hoffman about her uh, new book, her book from 2012, still semi-new in our uh, parlance, uh, called Healthcare for Some, Rights and Rationing in the United States Since 1930. Uh, and she's currently professor of history at Northern Illinois University, uh, where we are speaking today. Uh, and so welcome to New Books in Medicine, Beatrix. Thank you for having me. Okay, so as we sort of uh, have discussed, the way we like to start in the New Books Network is to have you sort of chart your interests, uh, you know, in the field in general and how you sort of got into this line of study and work. Oh, I love that question. And it made me realize I have to go pretty far back, if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. To when I was studying in the UK as a master's student at University of Warwick. And I was doing a degree in comparative British and American labor history. And we did a, a unit on comparative welfare states. Mm-hmm. And I just became, I guess, obsessed with the whole notion of American welfare exceptionalism and why we developed uh, such a limited welfare state in comparison to European countries and many other countries as well. I wasn't at the time specifically interested in health insurance or health care. Mm-hmm. It was more the overall question of uh, welfare state development. Um, and then... When I went, I went to Rutgers to study with Alice Kessler Harris, who was also starting to look at uh, social policy, and um, I chose healthcare as a case study for my dissertation <laughs> because I really wanted to write about uh, the Progressive Era because that's where 
you know, historians really see the origins of this divergence in, in welfare state development. And then I guess I was hooked on the whole question of why did the U.S. develop the crazy healthcare system that, that we have today? And so my first book focused on the progressive era um, when there was the very first campaign for worker, sponsor, uh, worker and state-sponsored health insurance, which took place in New York mm-hmm. in the 1910s. So it was really a, a political history of a failed reform movement. And it was, I argued, it was a turning point in the development of our unique healthcare system because it was at that point that we diverged from um, the model of starting with social insurance programs and building on those mm-hmm. to universal uh, entitlements and social rights. And that case study was, was published as, it's called The Wages of Sickness, uh, was my first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, I, I, I wasn't ready to stop <laughs> my inquiry. <laughs> I still had so many questions, and I knew I wanted to go further into the 20th century and probably just given my inclination, probably go up to the present, which I did end up doing in my second book. And initially, my, my question for the, the book that we're talking about today, Healthcare for Some, the subtitle of that book is Rights and Rationing in the United States since 1930. Initially, it was just going to be about rights. So I wanted to write a history of the right to health care. And the grant proposals I wrote at the time were all on that topic. And I focused that question around what I guess what I see as a paradox in the American health system, which is that there is no official um, social right to health care. But there is this very strong, I think there's an idea and there's an undercurrent that the denial of health care is unjust. Mm-hmm. And you see that more on an everyday basis as opposed to uh, part of our political discourse. But that belief in a fundamental right to health care is embodied in one very specific way in our health system, and that's in the emergency room. (laughs) So I originally had the question, how is it that we have, or why is it that we have a right to emergency care, but we do not not have universal health insurance, we do not have other rights to access in in the U.S. health system? Mm -hmm. So that was the question that drove me at at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I did some research, and I realized that the right to emergency care had only been around for a short time since 1986. Mm -hmm. So I developed a a proposal around that idea, the history of the right to emergency care and what that means for healthcare rights in general. But then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) I had developed some other themes around issues of rights, such as rights in Medicare and Medicaid, uh, rights for indigence, Mm -hmm. which has a long history, uh, debates over rights uh, of the poor to healthcare. Uh, but when I put it all together into a book proposal, I realized I was seeing something else. That I wasn't just writing history of rights, I was also writing a history of the denial of rights. And that it was out of this clash between uh, demands for access and the denial of care that the story was emerging. Mm-hmm. And then it hit me that this is a kind of rationing. Mm-hmm. That came almost at the end of my research process. So I didn't have the theme of rationing in mind as I was writing. It really came to me at the end. And then, then the, the narrative really fell into place mm-hmm. because I realized I could write it, a book chronologically tracing 
um, how American health care has been rationed, how it's been distributed uh, under the theme, which ended up as the title of health care for some. Because by definition, the American way of rationing is also a way of exclusion mm-hmm. and a repudiation of universalism. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why rationing has such sort of, you know, it's, it animates discourse, right? It has a negative valence to it. <laughs> exactly. And I knew it would be controversial to use that term, and I, I wanted it to be so, because mm. it's been used in such a specific way in debates, mm. um, and a, as a word that's applied to other health systems, but not our own. And I figured to trace that historically, and to show that the United States has rationed, to make that argument with historical evidence, might hopefully add something to our political debates. Yeah. And I, and I remember when I started reading the book, just sort of that aha moment of saying that, yes, cost control and all of these, um, you know, governmental mechanisms for regulating healthcare, these are in a way, they're, they're a form of rationing. They're not the same exact, and you sort of outline a different, you know, different lineages of kinds of rationing in their perception. It's not the same thing directly as, you know, in World War II, um, you know, food rationing that was, you know, enforced by the federal government. Um, <laughs> it's sort of a more, it's a more diffuse kind of rationing mm-hmm. that's bound up, I think, in some of these, you know, new logics of, of governance, of neoliberalism. N- not words that, like, are used in the book necessarily, but um, things that it definitely seems to address the emergence of. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought it was really fascinating. And so... Um, I guess we've uh, we've sort of unraveled the concepts pretty well, and so I just have a basic question, <laughs> actually. So your book deals with uh, you know the 1930s to the present in the U.S., but where would you sort of see you know in the world in time the origin of like insurance as such, um, insurance provided by a state um, for either emergencies or for general well-being? Um, so the origins of social insurance uh, are in Germany in the 1880s, and the German social insurance system was not established as a kind of progressive uh, move. It was kind of the opposite, Mm -hmm. uh, because the Chancellor Bismarck was trying to actually quiet social unrest in his country, and and specifically a socialist movement, by offering, uh, you know, services and and benefits to calm down the workers, basically. Mm -hmm. And so it was seen as, you know, kind of the, an enlightened type of, of governance, but still rather autocratic, mm-hmm. um, and as a way of, of creating social order. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that idea spread to other European countries, including, you know, more liberal regimes like in Great Britain, which established national insurance in 1911. Mm-hmm. And that's where the progressives in the U.S. got the idea to, to try it themselves. <laughs> But of course, in a, in a very different, in a very different way, right? Exactly. Commingled with uh, private interests more than um, in these other countries. Yes, by that time, the private interests um, were certainly making them their power felt, um, not to the extent that they would later in the twentieth century, mm-hmm. but uh, the certainly the medical profession in the U.S. was a major obstacle to the development of worker health insurance in the nineteen tens, as mm-hmm. was. Private business, which organized in, in a way that they had not in Britain, to to prevent the passage of state health insurance legislation. Mm-hmm. And that sort of leads me into my next question, which is about doctors mm-hmm. and the changing role of doctors in this book. So I don't know. I see many. There are many different actors that you have, and I think that it takes a very good um, 
you know, look at lots of different places. But um, I think that doctors throughout the book are interesting because you sort of see them as feeling um, kind of marginalized by the system and feeling a lot of pressure. Um, you know, they don't want to necessarily buy into all of the government's insurance plans. They think that they won't be reimbursed. In often cases, the reimbursement is quite delayed. And so, you know, there's sort of uh, a lot of angst from the medical uh, community around this whole, you know, regulation of medicine. And then later on, it's funny because you even as with the rise of managed care, you actually see these doctors' um, voices in policy. You begin to see them cropping up less and less, at least in the context of your book. So I guess my question really in all this is, you know, from this broader perspective, um, how justified do you think that these gripes of physicians were that they were being forced into a system that was essentially offloading the you know the kind of burden onto them rather than the state? Do you think that those claims were more justified or were they sort of rhetoric to achieve yeah. the goals of the organizations? Um, that's a great question. I think that the answer changes depending on the time period that we're talking about. One thing I've argued I think in all my work is that ideology and interest are not really separate and they, they often work together. Uh, but in, in the case of physicians, the ideology of physician independence, their desire to set their own fees, certainly that's, that benefits them financially, but they, were, they also firmly believed that that was the best way to provide medical care and to create high quality uh, medical care where I think the rhetoric overcame the, Reality. Um, well, there are several instances of that. There were often there were many examples of how uh, state provided or organized health insurance could benefit physicians, and even the evidence from Great Britain, where physicians had initially not been happy about national insurance. Uh, by the time the debates were going on in the U.S. and later in the 1910s, there was evidence that British physicians were making more money under health insurance because they were getting paid for treating poor people. Mm-hmm. And um, American physicians had a very heavy burden of treating the poor uh, on a charity basis, and that uh, also affected their incomes negatively. So there were certainly there was evidence for a financial benefit from health insurance for them. But the ideology really trumped that for most of the 20th century, as the book shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the Cold War intensified that the physician's argument that socialized medicine would be a threat to both their profession and also to, to patients. But as you said, and um, Paul Starr certainly made this argument in his uh, The Social Transformation of American Medicine, physicians ended up being more enthralled to uh, corporations rather than the government. And so their interests gradually shifted to be more and more in favor of some sort of um, government regulation, at least of private health insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And so in the last couple of big major um, health insurance debates in the Clinton era and also the more recent one, we definitely see many more physicians coming out in support of reform. And mm-hmm. the AMA is no longer the main opposition uh, they, in fact, have been superseded, uh, replaced, actually, by the insurance industry <laughs> as the major private interest that opposes reform. It took that long. It did. <laughs> huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, this has been, it's been over 100 years now, yeah. this battle. Yeah, and it's really, it's, it's, it's tricky, too, because, you know, you sort of see, obviously, concerns about the regulation of health 
are emerging at the same time as you know uh, be you know the medical profession is sort of solidifying itself professionally. So it's just this really, uh, it's a very interesting period, that kind of time between, I guess, um, you know, the Gilded Age and then uh, sort of right up to where your book picks up, um, just because there's so many, um, you know, potential interests and so many major transformations underway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and, also, and also not, not a character that isn't really, uh, dealt with in the book as much, but the sort of nascent pharmaceutical industry in particular is also probably playing a big role in this as, you know, um, alignments with different insurers um, emerge. They are, and I, that's one of the threads I did not develop in the book. You know, they, they come up here and there, and mm-hmm. especially in the, the middle section when I talk about the rise of private health insurance and how pharmaceutical companies um, they formed a basically public relations firm to advertise private insurance because they saw it as in their own interest that, mm-hmm. that their drugs would would be covered. Mm-hmm. But there's probably a whole book to be written about that, about <laughs> the pharmaceutical companies' relationship with health insurance debates. Yeah, exactly. I think that um, I, one of my previous interviews, uh, Joe Gabriel, his book sort of addresses the beginning of this. But mm-hmm. I think that he, well, he's going to work on a book on addiction. And then I think he also wants to go after this uh, this kind of relationship right. you know, that you're discussing. So hopefully we'll be seeing some more on that soon from multiple people. Sounds great. <laughs> It'll be fascinating. And so one of the uh, one of the other things, still, still, I guess, on the subject of physicians, one of the other points that I found interesting in the book was um, there's a lot of talk in, I guess, 20th century history about the infrastructural and policy changes uh, in the post-war, post-World War II period. Um, but I think that you highlight really well some of the actual influences of, you know, the experience of the U.S. at war on the development of the medical system. And in particular, you made a claim that um, because or doctors who had gone to serve abroad had worked essentially in group practice for standard wages, they sort of brought back that um, that kind of mindset that that was an acceptable way to do medicine, which um, you know, was directly um, in opposition to the AMA's views that you know, physicians should always act you know, kind of autonomously and as individuals. And so I'm, I'm interested to know, though, like more about that. What else did, you know, the experience of America going to war, what else did that bring to, you know, the kind of uh, nascent um, insurance reforms and help just, I guess, medical professional reforms? Well, in, in World War II, the role of the federal government in health provision really increased um, for the first time pretty dramatically, especially in, with public health measures. But also, they began a, a limited plan of hospital construction. So it was the first federal involvement in building up the hospital system, which would become huge after uh, World War II later in the 40s. Um, the experience of the physicians that you mentioned, I think, was important in popularizing and spreading the idea of uh, prepaid group health insurance, which had been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but their experience has kind of consolidated that, that this could be an option. And um, so that kind of insurance uh, did grow after, during and after World War II. Uh, but I think the main argument I make in that chapter is that there were some very um, important experiments with uh, federal provision of health care, especially mm-hmm. the Emergency Maternity and Infant Care Act, which was unprecedented for, for this country. Mm-hmm in which the the government actually paid for um, military wives 
to pay for their labor and delivery and even uh, postnatal care for their for their children, which without a wartime emergency would have been seen as shockingly socialistic for the United States. Mm-hmm. And this was a program that was incredibly successful and it was praised by pretty much everybody involved. Not all physicians liked it, but many did. And the uh, recipients of the care were almost unanimously ecstatic in support of it as were reformers who had proposed it. But because it was proposed as a wartime measure, and even the, the name itself is Emergency, Maternity Infant Care Act, it was temporary. Mm-hmm. And so they ended it after the war with the argument that this is not something that we want to permanently change the healthcare system. So to the disappointment of reformers, there was basically retrenchment after World War II. So I would say there was a big opportunity for fundamental systemic change brought about by the war, but that it was very deliberately pushed back Mm -hmm. through things like the cancellation of that program, the cancellation of the Farm Security Administration cooperative programs that uh, had started in the New Deal. Mm. And then, of course, the final kind of blow was the defeat of uh, Harry Truman's national health insurance proposal mm-hmm. later in the decade. So I see World War II as, as really a mixed bag that, you know, there was possibility for change, but mm. it was not completely fulfilled. Yeah, and the reversal seems to have become so dramatic that um, I remember reading in one instance um, with, I guess, some of these private insurers, pregnancy actually became sort of listed as a, you know, a kind of um, like a precondition, right? As, uh, you know, something that... An excludable condition. Exactly. Something that you could be denied Mm -hmm. (laughs) support on the basis of because, oh, well, obviously, of course, if you, uh, you know, you would know that you were going to be getting pregnant, getting this insurance. So we will call it a pre-existing condition and not cover it. (laughs) Well, that's a great example of how this was proposed as a right in World War II and then it was completely repudiated. Mm -hmm. And the private insurance actually said, no, it's not a right at all. It's just the opposite. It's one of the most excludable of all conditions. And um, that actually reminds me of one other thing I really must mention that did come out of World War II is, of course, the, the growth of the private health insurance industry. So the two major changes that persisted after World War II were, was the growth of the hospital system, subsidized uh, by the federal government, and the growth of private health insurance. And that was encouraged during the war by um, the government encouraging industries to provide fringe benefits for their workers in place of higher wages Mm -hmm. during the war. Hmm. And then the private health insurance uh, uh, plans just mushroomed after the war in private industry. And I also wonder about... And this, so the whole, and you bring up the rise of the hospital system, which is sort of one of the things I definitely wanted to ask you more about, because that seems to me to be one of the most kind of decisively American <laughs> terms of the healthcare system, right? Um, and it's based upon, I mean, the idea of promoting a hospital system, you know, it has many sorts of supports. You know, one is that we can, you know, kind of build larger research infrastructure, but Two is that we already have a mechanism in place for exclusion 
and we can continue to sort of um, you know use this mechanism that we know and simply expand it rather than trying to rethink what healthcare might actually mean um, for the country. So I don't know. Could you could you span uh, expand a bit on the sort of what were the assumptions and decisions involved in the expansion of the hospital system? Because it was, it was one of those things that many people would say, oh, it's inevitable for the modernization of medicine. You know, the birth of modern medicine is in you know the hospital. That's where research comes from. And that's sort of the, I guess that's the standpoint that people like me who study the, you know, medical, who study medical science are accustomed to seeing. But there's, you know, there are so many other uh-huh. ways that it could have been. <laughs> so the idea that it's a natural development in, in the advance of medicine. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you certainly, I mean, you do see the growth of hospital systems in all advanced uh, industrialized countries, but where the U.S. is distinctive is that um, is the repudiation of other alternatives to supplement a, ho- a hospital system, such as primary care, long-term care, home care, uh, clinics, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this uh, this change this growth of the hospital system after World War II was also very, very deliberate. It was not just a natural outcome of what was happening in the healthcare system. It was a product of, um, well, several things. The defeat of national health insurance, for one. Uh, hospital construction had been part of Harry Truman's national health plan, and post-war reformers strongly believed that building up the hospital system would be crucial for making the American health system more modern and advanced, and also for reaching more people, mm-hmm. that it would be good for everybody. But, but it was just part of a broader program that included especially coverage to pay for that care. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening when Truman's plan was defeated was the, health, the hospital system grew up without all those other mechanisms. So it was really most basically a construction program <laughs> to, make, to build buildings. Mm-hmm. And it did. It certainly did bring access to hospital care to especially remote areas of the country. It was very heavily emphasizing rural uh, populations. Its sponsors were um, from rural areas, mm-hmm. and so it certainly increased the availability of hospitals. But it did not provide for, for example, um, staffing of the hospitals. The idea was that if you build them, they will come. That mm-hmm. doctors and nurses will be attracted. <laughs> and to a certain extent, that was true. Um, but most importantly, it didn't include mechanisms for access. The, they, they managed to um, get through the 50s because of things like the growth of private health insurance and Blue Cross. Mm-hmm. So people were becoming increasingly covered for hospital care. But the Hill-Burton Act, which is the, the federal law that created the, this hospital construction uh, program after World War II, did as you it's exactly as you say have built-in mechanisms for exclusion as well as increasing access. So there was language in the legislation that allowed Southern hospitals to continue to segregate by race, mm-hmm. and there was also kind of very careful language. This is a product of a lot of uh, kind of behind-the-scenes debates that would make sure that hospitals would not be required to provide a lot of free care. So there was language saying that they had to provide some, uh, but it was not. There was no enforceable regulation. Mm-hmm. So, I, th- I think the argument that I, I make in the book is that every every expansion of access that's happened in the 20th century, which certainly, and yes, they benefit millions of people, but they also have built-in mechanisms for exclusion and therefore 
rationing. Mm-hmm. And, and the Hilburton Act is no exception. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm even recalling a part in the book where you discussed, um, you know, in, in the civil rights movement, um, trying to you know open up some of these segregated hospitals and the rhetoric existed on the other side that by, um, you know, the civil rights protesters trying to shut down the hospitals, that they were in fact denying um, those who were being treated uh, of their access, you know, of their right to health care. So it turns, it, it, you know, turns the argument right on its head. I think it was the governor of Alabama, Wallace, George Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote some sort of very inflammatory. <laughs> um, that wouldn't surprise piece. me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, it's very tricky. And one of the, actually, while we're on the subject, I guess, of uh, civil rights, one thing I found really interesting um, that I, you know, I had no idea about the origins of Medicare and Medicaid was the way in which, um, obviously, the promotion of an expansion of these programs, one of the main pillars was, of course, care for the elderly and, um, you know, end of the sort of dignity of, of end of life care. Um, but also the other pillar was uh, the civil rights movement. So it's, I, I never thought of those two as kind of, or seen them as really related. Um, and I, but perhaps that's probably because I didn't know that much about the, um, I guess, you know, the sort of lack of, you know, dignity and respect for um, the elderly, mm-hmm. those sort of implicit in the existing systems. So could you maybe expand a bit on what exactly, you know, um, contributed to the passing of Medicare and Medicaid? Um, sure. And this is still a subject of debate among historians, but I can certainly mm-hmm. give you uh, my take on it. Uh, that also builds on some other um, wonderful books by uh, Jill Quadagno, for example, and David Barton Smith have written a lot about the origins of Medicare and the role of civil rights um, in the implementation of Medicare. Uh, but regarding the, the elderly the growth of private health insurance that, that we were talking about in, in the 50s and 60s did not extend to the elderly because it was so very much tied to employment. Mm-hmm. Even if people got good insurance through their jobs, they would either lose it or they would end up paying a lot more when they retired. So the elderly in the 50s and early 60s were the most underinsured group. And they were also the most medically needy. I mean, they still are, because the elderly require more medical care than any other group in the population. Mm-hmm. And this this, um, this contradiction, I guess, became quite clear that the expansion of health insurance was not going to cover everybody. And it was, in fact, creating a lot of discontent among a constituency that was becoming increasingly important. And it was mm-hmm. certainly growing in size. And it was also growing in influence. So... The private insurance industry, in a way, um, you know, was <laughs> digging its own grave, if you will, because <laughs> they were very much opposed to further government expansion into health care. Uh, but without covering the elderly, you know, something had to be done. Mm-hmm. And that really led an opening, left, left an opening for Medicare to be established, mm-hmm. along with Medicaid, in 1965. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's really interesting. You sort of, yeah, you, you, you would think that that would be something that private companies would be very interested in sort of you know, emergently capitalizing upon, right? It was just too expensive. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't offer private coverage to uh, a needy population. And, and that's the problem with, that's the fundamental nature of private insurance is that they're trying to, they bring down their costs by insuring people who don't need to use whatever it is that they're providing, whether it's, you know, auto insurance or 
or health insurance. Mm. Private insurance companies have an interest in insuring only the healthy mm. or those who are likely to be healthy. Mm. And so it, there's a contradiction between health coverage for seniors and the imperatives of private insurance. Mm-hmm. And that contradiction is, is what led to Medicare, which at the time was the largest health reform in American history mm-hmm. until 2010. <laughs> exactly. And actually to sort of and see how that shades into the present and to kind of contradict what I just said, <laughs> um, now it sort of seems like what we get in the, you know, the rhetoric and the discourse about and the debate over um, healthcare access now is that expanding to more people is um, exactly an- is antithetical to uh, this sort of dignity at end of life and this you know <laughs> horrible like rhetoric of oh well obviously they're going to have to you know in order to uh, control costs um, to provide access to more people we're going to have to have you know these you know silly things like death committees and whatnot and that's a very you know. It's it's very active rhetoric still, really, and it, it, it surprises me. But that's sort of where this weird, you know, logic of cost control comes into play, and sort of it characterizes as you as you sort of characterize in later chapters of the book. It's sort of this is the way that most of the administrations, I think, from you know from Carter onward, uh, I guess Nixon's. Um, Nixon's changes as well could be characterized Mm -hmm. as being this, but almost every administration after from the 1970s onward has focused on healthcare primarily through the lens of cost control rather than access or trying to take a broader uh, view of health. So it's this kind of it's maybe an obvious question, but what do you see as the most damaging uh, part of this logic of cost control? Oh, there's so many, (laughs) (laughs) but. There's the logic, there's no logic to it, is, is the main problem that I see. Mm-hmm. Because if, if we were to just take a step back and ask, how do other countries manage to spend half or less of what the U.S. spends mm-hmm. on health care? The answer is, well, a huge part of the answer is universal coverage. Mm-hmm. But somehow we can't get there in the debate. Mm-hmm. So the logic is, is upside down. Uh, the argument, as you said, um, and as I say in the book, from Nixon onward, is that universal coverage is going to cost too much. We don't hear enough about how other countries manage to reduce costs with universal coverage. And that's, it's, a ba- it's a basic principle of even private insurance, mm-hmm. Com- community rating as opposed to experience rating. So the more people you have in the insurance pool, mm-hmm. the lower the costs, because then the healthy people will help you know, reduce the cost of the unhealthy people. Mm-hmm. That's insurance logic. Yet somehow we can we cannot seem to willingly apply that to the entire healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And I've read arguments that, I mean, even even sympathetic arguments that are kind of more toward the libertarian side of things. That oh well, you know, the sort of naturalized assumptions about the market as being the engine for driving down cost. And there's, so there is that sort of, there's a logic on one side of this kind of radical, um, you know, uh, severing of like the government from the medical system. And I, I mean, I, I sort of struggle to see how that would work in practice sometimes. But that's one example of a logic. And I guess that the issue is that there, the entrenchments are just um, so deep, the, you know, the entrenched interests in the pharmaceutical industry and in, uh, you know, in the insurance industry that's at issue in, in your book. And the hospital. 
and the hospital system. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it sort of seems like, you know, it's a, it's a very big tangled web, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's <laughs> terribly complicated. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, uh, so, but, I, but one thing actually <laughs> to provide, I guess, a moment of clarity. Uh, another thing I found interesting about, you know, sort of within this tangled web, um, as I was saying earlier about the different kinds of actors that I noticed in your book, um, some of the main actors I see in these policy changes are actually events, right, that sort of drive and nucleate um, certain kinds of concerns and serve as catalysts um, for action. And so, you know, you see things like, you know, the AIDS epidemic and uh, Hurricane Katrina really bring back into the public discourse um, ideas about or, um, yeah, ideas about what um, health and health coverage should consist in. And it kind of reminded me in a way of uh, Michel Foucault's favorite uh, quote from his mentor, uh, Georges Congiem, who said that the, that the pathological, while logically posterior to normalcy, is actually psychologically anterior, that we can only really <laughs> have any insight on you know, natural, you know, natural processes, which was the context he was using it in, or on social processes, except when they go really, really horribly wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yet that still doesn't seem to drive the United States to create fundamental change. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the examples that, that you mentioned, the AIDS epidemic and Hurricane Katrina, as well as other you know, big health care emergencies, um, the story that I tell about them in my book is that they, again, they reproduce this, this pattern of rationing. Um, again, expanding care, but at the same time limiting it mm-hmm. and ensuring that new benefits do not extend universally to everybody. So in the case of AIDS, uh, which um, one of the things I enjoyed writing most about writing the book was including some case studies of social movements in healthcare, because mm-hmm. uh, those have really just started to begun being studied by, by historians. And the AIDS movement was really and in so many ways the most successful in, you know, in winning their demands, especially when it came to um, drug development, drug approval, and really just changing the whole relationship between patients and, um, and research. Mm-hmm. So they were stunningly successful in, in creating this fundamental, I would say, cultural change and also in regulatory change and also in, in changing the culture's attitude toward uh, people with HIV. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not not completely, but a very powerful movement, um, and they did succeed in also extending access uh, through the the Ryan White Care Act, which it was a federal, which is a federal program that basically provides coverage for people with AIDS, health coverage, so hospital care, um, home care, etc. That's not available to people with other health conditions. Mm-hmm. So we have this uh, victory, but at the same time, it's not, it's limited and it's very deli- deliberately limited by Congress to, to not extend to people outside of a certain category. Right. And that's sort of the, I guess that's kind of the double-edged sword of that sort of very specific uh, disease condition based activism, right? Mm-hmm. Is that um, it's sort of, it's not like anybody's directly in competition with one another because everybody has the same goals, but the mechanisms of persuasion and the kinds of uh, the kinds of outcomes people will settle on may be antithetical to a more general <laughs> um, like reworking of the system. Yeah, and I, I certainly don't you know blame the social movements for for that outcome. 
it's really the nature of the healthcare system itself that that limits the ability of social movements to to reach kind of broader goals because like we were saying earlier it's a web right mm-hmm. and you have to target so many of different nodes in the web in order to really create change and it's no wonder that many um, social movements can only focus on one yeah I mean, you know is it going to be hospitals? Is it going to be private insurance? Is it going to be community care? Is, yeah. is it going to be, you know, there's many other possibilities, disease-based advocacy, et cetera. And there's been a lot of activism, but there has not yet been a unified, you know, really coherent, powerful movement for universal coverage. Mm-hmm. There's certainly been, you know, movements that, that are persistent, and important, like the movement for single payer, um, and they've had such an uphill battle in even getting listened to in in Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe this is a good opportunity to expand more, I guess, in sort of where um, you know, the, the book's not really the epilogue. The conclusion of the book is um, you know very much uh, within sort of you know the two uh, thousands and twenty tens. So perhaps this is a <laughs> perhaps this is a way into that. Um, I had to write that, that at the last minute. <laughs> I had to return in the whole manuscript when the uh, Affordable Care Act passed. Yeah. So the epilogue was last minute edition. <laughs> I think writing even, history as it happens. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. I think even today, as we sit here doing this interview, the hearings on the constitutionality yes. of the Affordable Care yeah, Act they, are, they are happening going. today. Yeah. So <laughs> serendipitous somewhat, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, anyway, so I, I, I'd be interested to hear your take on, um, I had sort of a bigger question in mind of how sort of, you know, taking the approach that you do <laughs> to, you know, contextualizing historically all these different attempts to, um, extend and limit and ration, uh, healthcare, what, what perspective, I guess, these changes, these attempts, you know, by some to cover more people, um, how those sort of shed light on the issues of the present and can help us kind of mitigate some of the you know problems in the debate that's going on. Obviously, it's not um, it's not like reading history is necessarily a way to adjust everybody's perception who sort of might see things one way or another. <laughs> that would be nice, <laughs> right? It, it, it can provide facts, but then of course um, it's interesting because you know in politics people do uh, sort of very <laughs> much believe that certain kinds of facts are more socially constructed than others. <laughs> so, what what do you think the real takeaway is of doing this kind of history um, for these kind of present debates? Huge question, I know. So feel yeah. free to answer in any way you like. <laughs> well, I really, I do want this country to talk about rationing and mm-hmm. how we already do it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we don't, I think really limits, it limits debate and it also limits the possibilities for how we make reforms and, and limits the resulting reforms. And there's so many problems that we're running into with the Affordable Care Act. And I, I, I see a lot of those is based in this history of rationing, you know, so one of them being, there's going to be different types of coverage for different people. Mm-hmm. So universalism was really not part of, it was not part of the Affordable Care Act. And that, that's a change because up through the Clinton reform effort, universalism was a pretty fundamental principle for health care reform. But by 2010, uh, that, was, that was history, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and so instead, they're going to expand 
coverage for different groups of people in different ways. So if you're uninsured, you might have access to a state or, or federal exchange. Depending on your income, you might get, get subsidies for that. That's what's being debated in the Supreme Court today. Right, right. And if you're very poor or you know between poverty and, and you know, lower middle class, then Medicaid expansion was supposed to help you out. That, again, was partly repudiated by the 2012 Supreme Court decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your coverage still depends on the, the kind of coverage available to you still depends on what state you live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, what kind of job you have, whether you're employed, unemployed, how large or small your employer is. So it's, there's you know, so many layers of categorization in the act. And so I guess it makes it easier for, for opponents to kind of chop off bits of it, mm. you know? So the Medicaid expansion has been drastically curtailed. If, if the subsidies are struck down, uh, they're in big trouble. Um, I think that's highly unlikely, but I, I'm not going to predict. But I, I guess my point is we see rationing built in. Even Again, even as expansion and access are increased, the rationing that's built in is, is making the program vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It also divides the constituency for support mm-hmm. because not everybody has the same stake in the system. A lot of people kept their old insurance. Some people had to pay more and they don't like that. Other people are left out. There's still more fragmentation as opposed to unity or, or getting together behind the idea of coverage for all. Mm-hmm. So we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, my, I feel like this history has to remind us that rationing has consequences mm-hmm. for, for human life and health. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the other one of the other fascinating things that you address is how sort of through this act and through its mechanisms, that sort of web of dependencies and interests is in a way kind of, you know, it's, it's being thickened, right? This logic of like, you know, how we can cost control is just is so diffuse. And now sort of you, you, you mentioned the fact that um, while certain while certain um, interests are curtailed by, you know, basically um, disallowing certain kinds of limousine mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> policies. What is happening is that um, the extension of care is occurring through, um, you know, private organizations. Right, right, right. And so it's enrolling more and more into that and sort of, you know, it just builds more into the system. And so it's, so it's just such a different thing than, um, than expanding just access or, you know, accessing all of that and starting afresh with, you know, universal health care. I think even that <laughs> is an important takeaway message for a lot of people, right? I think it's something that people ha- take umbrage with, but I guess the point would be for them to recognize that, well, it's sort of like the expansion of the hospital system was uh, kind of just an expansion of existing infrastructures um, to solve a problem rather than a radical and solution. And injecting a lot of federal money into a private, into private providers. Right. Um, but it's also, it's also critical to recognize that there, you know, there were compromises and there are some really important things that the act does that I think curtail American style rationing. And especially when it comes to private health insurance, because mm-hmm. these private companies are now getting a lot more federal money, but they had to give up something in exchange for that. And what they gave up was the right to 
exclude people mm-hmm. you know, with pre-existing conditions and the right to spend, you know, over a certain amount of their um, income. You know, they, they have to spend now more of their income on actual health care as opposed to other things. And so there's, there are these new um, restrictions on what insurance companies can do. It's mm-hmm. so kind of in the way that Medicare, it really helped hospitals, but it also controlled them more than they had been before. So they were forced to provide, um, they were forced to desegregate, racially desegregate. In the 80s, um, they were forced to lower costs to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, again, a moment of possibility where... We have these federal subsidies, you know, to the tunes of, tune of billions of dollars to the private health insurance industry, but that also might be an opening for private insurance to act more, um, to to open access, mm-hmm. and and maybe to create more fundamental change. Right. We we shall see. Rel- rel- relinquishing control in yeah. the interest of securing stability. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah, in a way, in a, in a way right? It's the model of kind of. Uh, well, it's, it's the sort of paternalistic model of medicine, right? <laughs> Obviously, I wouldn't go for it so far as to equate the two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, hmm. yeah, that's really interesting to think with. And so thinking toward the future, um, we like to conclude interviews. Uh, now that our time is sort of seeming to uh, be coming to an end, uh, we like to conclude interviews by asking you, uh, asking our interviewees about their present work. So could you maybe uh, you know, tell us a few of the things that you're working on at present? Oh, I would love to, because I'm so excited about what I'm working on now, although I haven't had time to work on it uh, <laughs> recently. But uh, I guess it, it kind of goes back to the um, Obamacare debates when, I don't know if you recall that Joe Wilson, the, the congressman, shouted out, you lie, mm-hmm. when the president um, was discussing leaving undocumented immigrants out of, of the reform. So my new project is actually on the right to health care for the undocumented mm. in American history. And I'm also doing a comparative project on that same topic. So looking at how other countries handle the issue of access to health care for immigrants. But that's at the very beginning stages, and I really look forward to working on it. I've mm-hmm. done some research. Uh, last, last year I was in Europe, and I did some research at the WHO and the UN to find the origins of international agreements on health care rights, mm-hmm. uh, like the covenant on economic and social rights of the, of the United Nations. Uh, so I'm going to start there. I'm going to kind of look at the, the global like, like policy history of ideas about health care for immigrants and then use the U.S. as a, a deeper case study because mm. my favorite thing is to do social history, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where my heart lies. So <laughs> I want to write a social history of how immigrants experience the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really fascinating. I'm sure we all uh, look forward to that book coming out when it eventually does. Thank you. And thank you so much again for uh, giving me your time this, uh, this evening, I guess. And my pleasure. And also for all you out there, thanks so much for listening. Uh, please go out and uh, purchase this book, Healthcare for Some, Rights and Rationing in the United States Since 1930. Um, it's really important, I think, to actually understand the origins of the systems that we're now sort of you know, calling into question and dealing with the anime public debate. And reading this book is a great way to get yourself acclimated with uh, where we are coming from. So thank you so much again. This has been New Books in Medicine. Have a nice day. <laughs>